Good morning, all. Steve Parisi here with IBC Global. Hope your day's off to a fantastic start. We've got Scott Witt Actuary at Witt Actuarial Services. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing just fine. How about you, Steve? Great. It is springtime over here, nice and warm. Had a nice run this morning. I'm, I'm loving it. <laughs> it's about time. <laughs> right on, right on. Well, we've got a, a great topic today uh, that there's been a lot of, of noise around, a lot of interest from um, consumers kind of on the fence saying, should I get into a policy now? Should I wait with the new 7702 update? And what's going to happen to the guaranteed rates on whole life insurance products? And what I wanted to talk to, to you about, because you're an expert in this field and you've, you've provided some great information to me, is really just drawing a, a distinction, call it between the guaranteed rates on a whole life insurance product and then the guaranteed values. And what, how does it work? What's it look like? And from a consumer standpoint, does it really make a huge difference where I have to get in right now or... Can I take my time in a sense? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think this is very timely and, and there is tons of confusion around this topic and understandably so. I mean, it's, it's a very confusing topic. And even before this update, in my experience, it was more commonly misunderstood than it was understood. So in, in a sense, this update has a chance for us to set, to set a lot of people straight who had misconceptions um, all along. And you know, I think maybe before we get into the weeds a little bit here, it's important just to recognize that this is really good news for the industry and it's really good news for consumers. And I think that some of, some of what's getting lost in the shuffle here is, is consumers and, and some commentators see that some of the key rates are dropping from let's say 4% to 2% and they feel like that's a bad thing. But as we as we get deeper into the podcast here, we'll we'll explain why that isn't the case. But at, at a high level, I think it's important to understand that these changes allow life insurance companies to keep doing what they're doing and and able to offer these products. They were starting to get squeezed between different limits, and and some some were approaching a point where you'd have to decide whether or not you could even continue to offer whole life or if you'd have to, have to switch to universal life. These changes now completely open up the doors for, for whole life to continue as it has been. Um, but most interestingly, and especially for a lot of the clients that you and I deal with, it has now become sub substantially more appealing to buy an accumulation-oriented policy. You are able to now stuff more money into the policy for a given level of death benefit than you could prior to the change. And I know a design that comes up frequently in, in both your practice and my practice is that clients are basically buying life insurance as an investment. I mean, if you're selling insurance, you can't talk about it like that, but you and I both know that, that a lot of wealthy people are treating life insurance as a tax haven and the life insurance is just an ancillary benefit that the death benefit component of that is just an ancillary benefit and so their objective is to minimize the death benefit as much as they possibly can these changes that just came into to to place and and will be gradually adopted in the, in the coming year let's say those changes allow for substantially more efficient 
accumulation. Um, you can, for, for if you're st stuffing in, let's say, $100,000 of premium, you don't have to buy nearly as much death benefit as you used to. That means your future mortality charges will be lower and your internal rate of return will be higher because the policy is more efficient. There's less drag. And so that's excellent news for people that are interested uh, in those types of policies. Yeah, no, I appreciate you kind of set, laying that or setting the ground straight there because with all the information out there, I think it's what, what it is, is there is a marketing aspect to anyone's business. Uh, but when anyone tries to market something without having the information yet, and misspeaks, I mean, some people will hear that and run with it. So for example, what I've seen very, very often, especially over the past month or two is, hey, with whole life insurance products, the guaranteed rate is going down. And that could fall anywhere with whole life insurance products. I've seen them state a range between two to 3.75%, depending on the carrier and what and how they set it. But as a consumer, like if I hear that, <laughs> my mindset would be, all right, if there's a guaranteed rate of 4% now, and then it's going to be 2%, say it's with the same company, that means I'm going to have significantly less value if I get into that product or whole life won't be what it used to be because the guaranteed rate is going down. But there's, there's more elements to it. And I know we don't have to get into the weeds here, but you know it. I mean, you can slice it slice it apart as far as you've got the guaranteed rate, but then you've got the insurance expenses and other areas. My big thing, and I'll talk about this often, is you've got the guaranteed rate. And even with the present dividend rate on a product, that's always a gross rate. I'll explain it. That's credited after the company's mortality charges, insurance expenses. I like looking at the net RRR, and I know you've got other formulas to calculate it as well, but what's the, the net return on cash value over time? So I guess we can kind of speak a little bit to that get, does a guaranteed rate decrease automatically mean that the guaranteed cash values will be lower no matter what? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. And I, I think maybe just um, an example that that's removed a little bit from the world of insurance and, and let's just bring it into finance. And let's say, let's say that I had to pay you a thousand dollars a year from now, but I wanted to set aside the appropriate money right now to make sure that I could fund that liability. And there's two different scenarios we could consider. Um, one scenario, I earn a 10% rate of return on the money I set aside now. And the other scenario, I earn a 5% rate of return. And what I'm trying to build up here is this is, is it, this is analogous to what an insurance company is using in its determination of, of guaranteed cash values and then also the reserves that, that they hold behind the scenes. And if, if I had a 10% interest rate I would have to have $909 set aside right now. If that grew at 10%, <clears throat> I would have exactly $1,000 to pay you at the end of the year. All right, so the 10% rate has an amount of $909 associated with it today. If I did a 5% interest rate, I would have to set aside $952 today. So by moving from a 10% assumption to a 5% assumption, 
I actually had to increase the amount that I'm holding today. I do. I had to increase it from nine hundred nine dollars. Or uh, what did I say? A thousand. I had to increase it from nine hundred nine dollars to nine hundred and fifty-two dollars. But the way that people are interpreting this interest rate change is when they see the drop from four to two, let's say, they think that they are getting lower guaranteed cash values. In actuality, if, if you held everything else constant, that drop from 4% to 2%, if, if indeed that's what the insurance company chooses to do with its guaranteed cash values, it would actually boost their guaranteed cash values because life insurance cash values um, for whole life insurance are calculated on a prospective basis, um, present value of future benefits, less present value of future premiums. And so you're looking forward and the rate of return that's assumed going forward is key in determining what those cash values are today. Um, I think it's also important to understand that the nature of whole life insurance is that there is a forced endowment, if you will, at the age of maturity. It used to be age 100 when the 1980 CSO was the governing table for, for mortality. When that got updated to the 2001 CSO and, and was updated later in the 2000s when it was actually implemented, the age of maturity changed to 121. So when you look at most policies today that, that are being issued and illustrated, you will see that at least the base portion, I know it can get confusing with the different types of, of coverage on a whole life policy, but at least with the base portion, you will see at the age of maturity that the cash value grows to equal the death benefit at that age. And so that that's really just proving the point that it's, it's this prospective formula. And when you get to the end of it, by definition, the cash value and the death benefit have to equal each other. So I'm sure that's probably mind blowing for people who had, who had convinced themselves that this drop in the, the rate that's used to determine the guaranteed cash value was somehow a sinister thing and, and policyholders, you know, we're getting the short end of the stick. That's, that's not the case. Um, it's, this is not a universal life guaranteed rate. Um, that is that is much more straightforward where if the interest rate on that drops from four to two, that is bad news for the consumer. There, there's less of a guaranteed component there. So I know that was that was quite a, a mouthful there, but I mean, I, I don't know if we, if we want to drill down a little bit more just to flesh that out. No, that, that was great. And, and I mean, what kind of popped in my mind there too, and this just comes from a conversation I had with someone else this morning is, if I'm a consumer or if someone's listening to this saying, okay, like a lot of that is, you know, sounds interesting, but I just want to make sure I get the best policy. I'm looking at whole life, IUL, talking to different people. That is like what, what your specialty or expertise is and looking at their portfolio like that, that's extremely valuable. And I've heard people express this to me that have worked with you, whether they bought a policy through us or someone else was, Hey, like he, he's a complete fiduciary talking about you saying, here's what to do. Here's the recommendation. You know how to dissect the whole life insurance product without selling it. Like you make no, no product sales, you know, it's just pure recommendations. So you can have someone that can help in that respect to, to really make sure you being the consumer are in the best possible position 
without getting biased information, um, you know, from, from anyone. I mean, even from my position, you know, you and I have spoken, you know, the carriers I prefer, how I like to design products um, to maximize value. But still, when you work with someone, you're looking out for them. Uh, and I've seen that constantly. So didn't mean to just throw a, a, you know, random promotion in there. But I think that if I'm a consumer, like what you just said there would give me peace of mind to know, okay, I may not get that stuff, but this guy does, and I can just focus on my business and moving forward, and he'll take care of it for me. <laughs> I welcome all types of promotion, random or otherwise. So, uh, so thank you. I, I do think that I mean that gives us a, a little chance just for maybe a little bit of a history lesson. And I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but for for your listeners, um, you know, prior to the mid '80s, life insurance was pretty much the wild, wild west when it came to um, taxation. You know, the, the death benefits were were not taxed and there really wasn't any consideration given to taxation of, um, of the gains within a policy. But with the emergence of really high interest rates in the late 70s and the early 80s, life insurance suddenly became a hot savings vehicle. And so in, in 1984, um, some some definitions of life insurance were adopted into the tax code. And while it's a little bit in the weeds, I think it's important for the listeners to understand just how complicated this is behind the scenes and how understanding these, and while the client may not have to understand them, it's important that their advisor does. And back in 1984, then, there were two different definitions of life insurance that were developed. One is known as the cash value accumulation test. And that's basically what all whole life insurance policies use is the cash value accumulation test. And then separately, there was a guideline premium corridor test and universal life policies really have the choice of which of, um, which of those tests. Are they going to use the, what's known as the CVAT, the cash value accumulation test, or are they going to use the guideline premium slash corridor test? And so um, until recently, that was, that was quite critical. Um, let's say if you're looking at a universal life policy to know which definite life insurance best fit your goals. The reason that everybody's talking about these changes and the, and the reason these changes were necessary is that the interest rates that were coded into that, that tax act that was passed in 1984, they were hard coded as a fixed interest rate. And those interest rates may have been appropriate at that time, but as interest rates have continued to go down, down, down and have approached zero, that's what needed to be changed in those rules. So within the, the definition of life insurance, that, that original law that was passed in 1984, we now have different interest rates that, that, are, that, that are in those rules. And, and again, the original motivation of those rules was to make sure that a product was not being overly abusive and was more of an investment than it was an insurance product. Those rules now have, in essence, been loosened a little bit so that products can be more investment heavy in terms of the cash to death benefit uh, relationship. They can be more cash heavy now than they could from the period of 1984 up until the end of 2000. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, really appreciate that. Um, so I guess what we can do uh, to kind of close the, the loop on the guaranteed discussion, there's one example um, out of reference that kind of sort of just gives a picture 
of what whole life might look like because uh, it is a different product and then get into the overall point, which I know you've ex expressed several times based off of actual data and proof is bridging into the non-guaranteed values and the importance, the reality of it when you really look at things. Um, but as far as this change, I mean, the thing is right now, when it comes to retail whole life insurance products, companies haven't updated yet. There's no products available from a carrier as of today, March 12th, when we are shooting this podcast. With that said, um, you know, my company, we've got experience in bank-owned life insurance. We're working with a bank right now, and one company has updated their Boli product. And where I had the most fun with it was looking at the old product compared to the new product, you know, generic illustrations and then the actual case. And I, my intent here is this might kind of help consumers look at it and say, okay, with a guaranteed rate compared to the guaranteed values, there's not much of a, a real difference. Um, high level, the guaranteed rate on the new Boley product with this company, one of the major mutuals, dropped by 50 basis points. So the guaranteed rate dropped, dropped by half a percent. Yet, when you look at the guaranteed cash values, especially over time, they were greater in the new product. Which for a consumer, you hear lower rate, more value, like, okay, what, what the heck? And that goes back into what you mentioned as far as there's so many other components that have an impact on that guaranteed value. Now, the trade-off for the, the consumer, the bank in this case, is the death benefit initially was significantly lesser. Uh, closed a little bit, not quite 50%, but it was, it was less. So greater cash value, but lesser death benefit based on the same deposit by that that bank with that particular product. So, you know, it gives some insight just as far as the guaranteed rates and values. Granted, Bowley's a different product than whole life when you really look at it. But it is interesting to me because people see that and just kind of say, all right, that's completely different from what I've thought. And that begins to shed a little bit of transparency. And that was with the guarantees. And then we can kind of bridge into the non-guarantees here. It was the exact same thing, actually, to a greater extent with the non-guarantees when you looked at it. Lower non-guaranteed rate, but stronger non-guaranteed net value. So a net internal rate of return was stronger with a new product, even though the gross rates were less. If that yeah, so sense. I think that's a great example of how these changes actually benefited the people that were in that in that space. And so um, at first blush, you know, it sounds like bad news to have the the rate that's used in the determination of the guaranteed cash values to have that drop, it actually, in, in the situation you just outlined, it sounds like it led to both higher guarantees and higher non-guarantees. Yeah, 100% on the cash value. The death benefit with the old product was stronger for a solid 20 to 25 years. Um, over time, the new product did overtake it though on the guaranteed and non-guaranteed death benefit over a long period of time. Um, and with the case studies we've looked at, it depends on age and gender. You know, when you look at how, how bully products work, you know, what's the group that they're actually putting the insurance on. Um, but the main point is both the cash value and death benefit long term are stronger. The cash value immediately we see the either stronger or very, very consistent with the old and new. But the old one does have a, a higher death benefit initially. Sure. Well, that um, I, I jotted down a number of things, just some some quick points that that I, I want to touch on here. 
what you just described reminded me that, that it's important for, for us to recognize and for the listeners to understand that you've got policies that are on the accumulation into the spectrum and you've got policies that are on the protection into the spectrum. And much of my focus and my comments today have been targeted at folks who are on the accumulation end of the spectrum, but certainly you've got people out there that are buying life insurance for the death benefit and maybe they're maybe they're seeking a level death benefit and they're wondering, you know, how how these changes uh, affect them as well. So I, I think it's, you know, it's important to recognize that there is a difference between those two. Um, another point that, that I wanted to make, um, touch, you know, going back to, to some of the history, after the definition of life insurance rules came out in the, you know, the mid 80s, a few years later, that there was still, uh, it felt there was uh, still a need to further define what the maximum amount of money you could put into a contract um, would be. And so these modified endowment contract rules were adopted. Um, a lot of people uh, allude to that as a seven pay test. And so I, I think it was, I think it was 88 when that um, was passed. And, and those rules exist today. They also were hard-coded and those rules were also updated as part of this change. So very significantly for the accumulation-oriented policies, you now can put more money into a policy without it being designated as a modified endowment contract. And for the folks that are buying accumulation-oriented policies, they usually want to avoid MEC status because once your policy is designated a MEC, any distributions from that policy forfeit the tax advantage that they otherwise would have had. Those policies are now taxed on a gain first basis and there's a, there's a penalty tax on, on any gains um, for distributions prior to age 59 and a half. So uh, it's also important to recognize that, that not only was the definition of life insurance updated, but the MEC rules were updated. And so you're able to stuff more money into a policy without your contract um, being targeted as a mech. So I've got a couple other points I want to make, but I just don't want to ramble on here. I'll kind of wait to try to inject them uh, before we wrap up. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, appreciate that as well. I mean, it's it's interesting always on the mech test. I mean, I like digging into that, uh, but that's a good topic for another time. Uh, if, keep, keep going with your points. I mean, I wanted to bridge into the non-guarantees as well, because uh, I know we've been focused on the guarantees because that's the hot topic, but it's good to, to understand the non-guarantees because they are important. But um, keep keep hitting on your points. I don't want to completely Okay, I, I really just have one more before we segue into the non-guarantees. And that that is that there are, there are a lot of ripple effects in the pricing of life insurance. And, and, and listeners might be wondering, why can't, why can't the insurance companies just go into their, you know, their their black box computer program and change 4% to 2% and roll the product out? But there are so many things that, that they need to look at, um, probably the most important of which is agent compensation. Um, agent compensation is going to become a lot more complicated after these changes and, and companies are going to have to make some really tough decisions about are they trying to preserve agent compensation at the level it was before? And, and who is going to benefit from, from these changes? Is it going to be entirely absorbed by the consumer and now they have more efficient policies and part of that efficiency is due to lower agent compensation? Or are the companies going to claw back some of that advantage in an effort to keep the agent compensation more at a level 
like it used to be before these these rules came into place. And I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect there's a little bit of a game of chicken going on with the, within the industry right now. I don't know if anybody really wants to be first to market. You said that nobody was out there. That may be true, but I think that there could be some products that are starting to be rolled out. And, and certainly in some segments of the marketplace, like Universal Life, for instance, some, some, some carriers have products that were simple enough that they could make a quick change and roll those out. But over the next year, there's going to be a lot of confusion. You know, when you're looking at a policy, are you looking at the, the pre, you know, update version? Or are you looking at the post update version? Should you wait? Um, because these guaranteed cash values are going up. And again, that's, that's probably confusing because people, again, the rates, the rates are going down, but the guaranteed cash values themselves are actually going up within the whole life policies. That drives the gross premiums up for carriers. And then, like I said, they have to figure out all these ripple, all these ripple effects. And um, I don't think anybody knows what the end of this story is going to look like. And uh, a year from now, if we do another podcast on this topic, we'll be a lot smarter. We'll see how the industry responded. Um, but that's a good segue into, you know, I don't think people should let perfect be the enemy of good when it comes to jumping into getting a life insurance policy. And these changes are, are not going to turn an average policy into a great policy. They're probably not even going to turn a good policy into a great policy. You could get a great policy today under the old rules uh, for, from, from an accumulation-oriented perspective. And under the new rules, it would just be a little bit greater. It's, it's not going to be a dramatic difference in my view. More importantly, if, if there are changes, in, in, my, in my view, that incremental value comes in the form of higher non-guaranteed values ultimately and I think all the gnashing of teeth about are, are the guarantees going up? Are they going down? I know you and I differ a little bit. I, I think you place more value on the guarantees um, within your practice and for your clients. And while I appreciate that, that there is value there, you know, particularly on a retrospective basis, once you get a dividend and it, it purchase, purchases some paid up additions, there's guaranteed cash value associated with that that can't be taken away. And so there, there is a floor. Your values are not susceptible to, to dips in the market or anything like that. I just don't think when it comes to differentiating between product A and product B, I don't feel like a different schedule of guarantees in those two products is particularly meaningful in this space. You know, ultimately what's going to differentiate one cash value policy from another is going to be the non-guaranteed values that are paid over the life of that policy. And you know, when I say non-guaranteed values, the non-guaranteed elements that I'm referring to are the interest, the mortality, the expenses, and maybe to a lesser extent, the lapse rate that, that affects all of those other components. But it's going to be that actual experience which defines the long-term value. And when it's all said and done, those guarantees aren't going to matter unless you ended up in a guaranteed environment. And life insurance companies, whole life insurance companies have been operating in a non-guaranteed environment for basically 150 years straight. And, and even though 
interest rates have gotten lower and lower and lower, companies are still paying dividends. Um, there's a lot of margin built into the pricing of those policies in the other components. So even though there's a lot of, not a lot of margin in the interest rate piece, they've got margin in the other pieces. And I mean, let's be honest, companies are still crediting a dividend interest rate that's higher than the rate that's embedded in, in the guaranteed cash values. You know, even if you had a 4% guaranteed cash value rate, there are companies out there paying a 5% dividend, a 6% dividend. And so there's still a positive contribution to the dividend coming from the interest rate piece. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying that I don't think guarantees and, and how they differ from one policy to another, I don't think that should rank near the top of your considerations when choosing between one policy versus another. The fact that there are guarantees on whole life insurance, I think is meaningful, but I don't know that differentiating one from another um, carries a lot of weight for me personally anyway. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And I would agree with you as well, uh, because uh, when I look at any life insurance company and a product and someone's interested in cash value, like an item of buyer's remorse that always pops up, if someone gets a policy and then they either bought it off the illustration and it didn't perform on par or it wasn't designed properly and they said, man, like I wish I wish I would have known enough from the beginning to have it set up right. And what I've seen to be consistent is, you know, a, a handful of carriers, four of them, the, the four major mutuals have consistently disclosed, hey, here's historical policies. We've got independent studies, comparative studies. And they've, they've delivered. They've delivered strong cash values, strong accumulation, net IRRs, often of over 4% I've seen from those top four carriers. And that's, that's non-guaranteed. <laughs> it's not based off the guarantees. It's actual data. And I'm, I'm big on that because when you look at an illustration, guaranteed, non-guaranteed, like it's an illustration. It's a projection. At the end of the day, who's actually done it? And I've seen those guys do it. And then at the same time, to get into your point, when you look at the guaranteed values, I can take the guaranteed values with one of those companies and compare it to another where they have on paper the same guaranteed rate of 4%, but guaranteed values that are significantly different. Does that mean the one with stronger guarantees is better? Well, when you look at the actual data, what they've done based off their, off their non-guaranteed environment, like, no, they, they go back and forth with each other. Hard to go wrong with either of them. So it's... It's something when you look at the the guarantees, but then the actual performance reality, um, not just what we're, we're able to pull from illustrations and put on paper. So, I mean, there, there's a great there's there's a great companion point to that. Sometimes people will look at an illustration and they'll look at the dividend amount and they will conclude that the policy that pays higher dividends is superior to the to the policy that does not. But the dividend piece is just the balancing component in conjunction with the, the guaranteed cash value to get your policy where it needs to be at the end of the year. So an insurance company will look at, and, and this is an important point for people to recognize too, at, at the start of a given policy year, so where you are today, there is no difference between your guaranteed cash value and your non-guaranteed cash value. Your cash value is your cash value. Once once your cash value has been credited, like let, let's say you got a dividend and you purchased a paid up addition, there's a certain amount of cash value that's associated with that. On that day, 
that is both a guaranteed and a non-guaranteed cash value. And, and so you, the guarantees in your policy continue to ratchet up. Every time a dividend is paid on your policy and you turn around and put that dividend into your policy, all of your forward-looking guarantees have been ratcheted up as well. And I, and I think a lot of people are under the misconception that after you've received a bunch of dividends, the insurance company could somehow rip those away and you could go back to your original guaranteed level on your original sales illustration. And, and that's not the case. And so if, you're, if your clients want to see this or if the listeners want to see this, get an in-force illustration on an existing policy, look at the guarantees going forward, and you will see that those guarantees are dramatically higher than when you originally bought the policy, as long as you, you know, use the dividends internally, and, or, or maybe you had additional premiums that you were putting into the policy, and those additional premiums are purchasing paid up insurance. But, but the guarantees that were in, in force on the day you bought the policy almost assuredly are irrelevant now because you've continued to update with additional money that's gone into the policy and your guarantees have ratcheted up. Yeah, I get it 100%. So taking, call it the original illustration, there were your guaranteed values. Then I've got a policy policy that's five, 10 years old, whatever. And then on that in-force illustration, what's my guaranteed values? Call it year 10 compared to what that original illustration compared to year 10 and you'll have more in the enforce because you've received the dividend and such, and that that's part of your guarantee moving forward. Did I explain that? <laughs> yeah, explain that right? yeah, yeah. And and, and mm -hmm. so I mean, what I was building up to there is is how a dividend is calculated. So at the beginning of the year, the insurance company sees the cash value on a policy, and then actual experience is applied. Um, they look at at what the mortality charge is that is appropriate for for the policy in that state. There's some expenses, there's the actual interest that they're going to credit, and that gets them to an end of year actual cash value. That's what, that's what the insurance company thinks that, that the total cash value should be on that policy at the end of the policy year. Well, then they go back and they say, well, based on where you were at the beginning of the year, what would your guaranteed cash value have been at the end when we take the, the guaranteed cash value table into account and... The interest rate is, is a component of that, but there's also a mortality and a built-in expense component as well. And they look and they say, okay, the guaranteed cash value growth would have given you this much increase and any excess that we identified in the total, the difference between those two is going to be the dividend. So the dividend is simply the balancing mechanism to get the growth in guaranteed cash value all the way up to the growth in the total cash value that the insurance company thought was appropriate. And therefore you can see why, why it doesn't make any sense to try to isolate the guaranteed cash value piece and it doesn't make any sense to try to isolate the dividend piece. It's the combination of those two that determine the total growth in value on a policy over the course of a policy year. And, and, the only time that that guaranteed value becomes relevant is if when you compare the guaranteed cash value at the end of the year to the total cash value, if the total cash value is below the guaranteed cash value, the company isn't going to pay a negative dividend. That They can't go below zero. And so then you would be in the proverbial zero dividend environment and your end of year cash value would solely be determined by the guarantee cash value scale. 
That almost never happens. It can happen in the early years of a policy, but like I said, for 150 plus years, mutual companies collectively um, have been operating in a non-zero dividend environment. So th there's just so many, there's so many complexities behind the scenes. And, and you know, I, I don't want to toot our own horn, horn here, but there's a lot of smart people making bad decisions with respect to life insurance because they know just enough to be dangerous and they compare a bunch of illustrations and they'll isolate on, like I said, they'll, they'll fixate on the dividend piece or they'll fixate on just the guaranteed cash value piece. And it's so much more complicated than that. So no matter how smart you are, or how wealthy you are, um, it's good to have a second opinion and it's good to have somebody in your corner that isn't trying to sell you something. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. And I mean, I, I've seen so much of that. You know, I've heard it from consumers that will sometimes shop if they're isolating the dividend and such. I, I hear it all the time because a lot of companies will, life insurance carriers will pay a higher dividend, a surplus, if you have a higher base premium over the life of that policy. You'll see, okay, look at this great dividend on paper. But at the end of the day, when you look at the actual net cash value, both illustrated and historical, like, I don't care because the total cash value is not greater. Like if the dividend's significantly lesser on paper, but I've got more net value, that's what's important to me as a consumer. So, you know, isolating different areas, it's good to, to have some awareness. I mean, I, I won't get go into that because I'll keep going, but it's good to have awareness on that. But at the end of the day, like what gives you greater net value? based off of what we see today, the present environment. If you wanna look at a conservative dividend or guarantees, hey, that's great. But also real data, historical performance, like I like looking at all of that to see, okay, what's going to give you the greatest net value? That way you have maximum value, maximum flexibility if anything happens and you can use it, whatever your goals are. Retirement, if you wanna, if you like the idea of borrowing from it, whatever it might be, optimize everything first. And that way you've got the most operating capital to work with for whatever it is. Yeah, no, I agree. And you know, another thing just to consider is that with, with the complexity here, you know, insurance companies are trying to sell policies. Life insurance agents are trying to sell policies. When, when things get this complicated, they can be manipulated in, in how, how they're presented. And so it's possible and, and they don't even necessarily need to be unscrupulous. They, it, they might just be not as educated. You know, there, there could be agents that are misleading clients and, and leading them down the wrong path. And it, it, could, it could be self-serving or it could simply be that they're not aware. And, and, and frankly, it really doesn't matter to me. My interest is making sure that my clients get the best foot put forward on their behalf. But, you know, it's definitely a situation in, in, in life insurance that I, I think it needs to be buyer beware. Um, because of the complexity that's there, you're often put into a situation where you're buying insurance on the basis of trust. And because of that, um, there is uh, lots of opportunity for suboptimal decision making, let's just say. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. Uh, and I mean, we, we see it all the time. You know, one thing I've seen recently is, hey, IULs um, will be much, much more superior to whole life now because that guaranteed rate that made whole life so strong is coming down. And we already touched on this, like, okay, that's not the reality of it. So that 
I don't think agents ever maliciously do that. They just don't have the information right now. They just see it, say, hey, IUL has a lower guaranteed rate, zero or whatever it is. Now whole life's coming down. Woohoo! But at the end of the day, you're like, IUL and whole life have a purpose. I'm not attacking one or the other. It's more so just transparency. It's like, okay, you've got to know how it works. And if you're worried about, hey, I don't want to talk to an agent that's just going to say go one way or the other, like that's that's really where your company comes into play because you're not going to sell one or the other. It's like, here it is. Here's how it, how it works and here's what to look for. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to tackle that head on. Um, let's ig let's ignore the the crediting strategies and, and the indexing on, on the IUL policy, but let's just focus on IUL versus whole life. One of the biggest advantages that UL had over whole life was that it could use the guideline premium test and you could stuff more money into an accumulation oriented policy if you if you jump through the right hoops and you know use the right death benefit option and 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 various things but much of that advantage has been eroded now with these changes and so the guideline premium test no longer enjoys the same type of advantage over the cash value accumulation test and by extension then IUL sometimes looked better than whole life simply because you could more efficiently stuff money into the UL chassis. And there was a built-in advantage for IUL or any type of UL, frankly, whether it's VUL or just a regular old UL policy, there was an advantage to UL because of its ability to use the guideline premium test while whole life insurance had to use the cash value accumulation test. Now with, with the, the law updates, there is less distinction between those two in terms of how they practically impact um, the design of a policy and again a year from now we're going to be a lot smarter but but i don't know if the ul guideline premium chassis we, we it, it may have had its heyday i'm not saying it's not going to exist going forward but um it's a less compelling story than it used to be now there are people that will convince themselves that there's other reasons to buy IUL. And I think you and I have touched on that and that that's a topic for another day. But the from a structural advantage standpoint, the, the UL chassis no longer enjoys the magnitude of the advantage that it did over whole life when it comes to certain types of accumulation designs. Yeah, and that's such an interesting point just because when you look at it on the surface, more, more so as an agent, going back to the gross rate, you think, okay, it, it evens the playing field out, making one think, okay, now IUL has a better advantage on the guarantees. But in the reality, it's like, no, it actually evens it out on the non-guaranteed side. A whole life, it becomes stronger in that respect. And again, like you said, a year from now, we'll see the difference. But uh, I mean, I go back to that example that, that I've actually seen with a Foley product. It's like, hey, lower guaranteed rate, stronger net value. And the compensation on that actually stayed exactly the same. So we'll see how it works. I've heard a lot of stuff as well um, with the retail products, but with that, with, with Boley, it did stay the same with that company and that product. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of close with a self-serving promotion here and, and, and probably if, if there are any agents listening might make them mad, but the explanation of guaranteed cash values and how dividends work has been wrong um, the vast majority of times I've heard somebody attempt to explain it, it's been wrong. 
And I guess my, my cautionary word to the listeners is why would you trust somebody to explain what the changes mean to you when they couldn't properly explain how things worked before? And so, you know, there's, there's the danger here of the blind leading the blind a little bit when it comes to rushing into a sale or even being advised to wait for a sale. You know, there's, there's a lot of agents that are really smart people and really good people, but they're just not trained to understand how guaranteed cash values work, what the implications are of, of 7702 or, and the updates. And, um, I don't know how you tell the difference between how, how does my agent really know or not. And I, I think you need to go to somebody unbiased and it doesn't have to be me, but there, there are other people in the country that are fee only insurance advisors. And I, I just think when, if you've got a lot of money at stake and there's a lot of confusion, I think you are well served to get advice from somebody that can serve in a true fiduciary capacity and whose compensation does not depend on what your decisions are. And to, to reiterate, I'm going to get paid on an hourly or a project fee, no matter what you decide to do. If, if a client hires me, I don't get paid extra if they buy a policy or if they buy a certain type of policy, there's no kickback arrangement. I know sometimes I have clients that buy policies from you. You and I have no relationship other than doing these podcasts together. And so it, it makes no difference to me financially if my clients buy a policy from you or from any other agent that's out there. I, I like my, you know, it's a good deal for my clients to go to you because I know it takes less of my time. You know the drill, you know how to put the best foot forward for my clients and I don't have to spend as much time looking over your shoulder, making sure that you're not trying to squeeze out some extra compensation or, or pleading ignorance on something. Um, so it, it's a good deal for clients that, that hire me for them to utilize your services just because it's streamlined and it keeps my bill down and they know they're getting the best deal possible from you. Um, so anyway, that's the end of my promotional uh, piece there. No, no, I, I hear you and I appreciate it as well. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's what it's about. How do you maximize the value, make sure it fits into your goals. Uh, today, we were laser focused on life insurance, the product, what it is now, what's going to happen, guaranteed, non-guaranteed, or at least our, our foresight with a little bit of data that we have because you know, we are fortunate to have that Bowley product. And I guess to, to sum it up with what you said, where it's like, hey, trying to make sure we get the right advice. Like my, my thing is, I love the idea of having someone that's non-biased, um, independent, looking out for my best interest. I'm actually just connected with um, an attorney. She worked with ultra high net worth individuals through another, uh, a couple, a client that we're, we're working with, but she was so sharp and she actually knew about life insurance in and out. Like if you're an agent trying to smooth talk her to say, hey, here's how you should design a policy for greater long-term value, she'll knock you out. And like, I like this person, I hired her. <laughs> um, but the independent advice is always valuable. But at the same time, like I've always looked at it and this is how I started when I first went on my own is seeing what the ultra wealthy do. Corporations, banks, when I had the, the privilege of designing policies for those individuals, those corporations, it's like, okay, that works. It's worked for a long time, still working very well. Why not just copy them to the greatest degree possible? And the, the objections I get sometimes is, 
well, that's less comp to you. I'm like, well, I don't care because if you're doing the right thing, the business will stay on the books and you'll make more over time. Like it's not about the money. Just just do what's right for them and everything will come. At least that's how my parents raised me. Yeah, and I know agents face a moral dilemma. Um, they they want to they want to they want to earn enough money so that they're around to service the business and, and to make sure that their business is viable. But um, you know, when somebody like you gets to a certain level, you have the luxury of being able to take the moral high ground and and still put food on the table. And so you know that that's what I really appreciate is you've got a scale that um, allows you to just you know, say you're always going to put the client's best foot forward and you don't have to compromise um, and, and try to rationalize, you know, why a higher commission policy makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. And when I started the business, I lived at home as I built everything up. So that's how I did it. <laughs> well, if commission's that low, I mean, like you, <laughs> yeah. you, you've got to have volume um, to stay yeah. in the business for it, sure. It took some time, but once it gets going, it's the snowball effect. Um, but anyway, this this has been great. You know, really appreciate your time today. Good topic. Um, if anyone has questions or would like to to talk to Scott or um, or, or our company, links below um, on the YouTube link or in the podcast link. Um, feel free to reach out anytime. You can call, email us, and we, we're always happy to happy to talk. All right. Thanks so much, Scott. Really Thanks, appreciate Steve. your time. Yeah. Have thank a great you. day. You too. Thanks. Mm -hmm.